when I communicate science with someone who doesn't have the background expertise, they're not dumber than me. You know, this idea that we said we are dumbing down in order for people to understand, they're not dumber than me. They just haven't had the benefit of years of dedicated thinking about this stuff that I have. Getting an idea across in a way that I think they can understand, sure, I'm going to probably leaving out some of the details of the algebraic derivation that are not important in getting the concept across, but it gives me genuine pleasure to see that penny drop the light bulb come and we say, oh, oh, I see now. I get the same sort of tingle enjoyment of someone understanding something that I've explained that I got when I first learned that. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Today, you are all in for a treat. As we speak to Professor Jim Al-Khalili, who is a fellow of the Royal Society, a quantum physicist and holder of the University of Surrey Distinguished Chair, as well as a personal chair in physics. Uh, how many chairs can you have? You've got a university chair, a personal chair, and the public engagement of science. Yeah, I've, I've got a whole three-piece suite, I say. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a one-man Ikea. It's exactly, amazing. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, going to try to be mindful of your time because I know uh, it's a very gracious of you to spend any time here, but we have a new book that's coming out called The Joy of Science. So I want to start off by doing what uh, you're told never to do in life, which is to judge a book by its cover. So Jim, <laughs> tell me, what is the origin of this book's title, subtitle, and the the awesome cover design as well? I had all, all a whole list of different titles that I had suggested to my publishers, Princeton University Press, and it was about you know rationalism, the scientific method, and none of them really sort of resonated or sort of captured the imagination. And then my editor at Princeton suggested The Joy of Science, because, I mean, it is a celebration of why science is so important, why we scientists do what we do, uh, how it gives us this better understanding and empowerment because we can understand more about how the world is, you know, enlightenment over ignorance. But it's also a book about how we do science, the scientific method, and the fact that if we could use some of the techniques that we use in science when science is done properly mm -hmm. in daily life i think it would make everyone the, you know the happier you know the idea of you know the importance of doubt and uncertainty the importance of examining your evidence being prepared to change your mind so it's eight lessons from the scientific method so that's one of the reasons why you have sort of the letter eight two circles on on, on the cover and the other is the uh, at the very beginning i use an example i'm not the first author to do this you know people like um carl sagan certainly use it talking about the, the the beauty of the rainbow and why you know when the poet keats criticizes newton by saying you know you've you've destroyed that exactly exactly you know that the, the breaking light into its prismatic colors somehow. Unweaving the rainbow. Unweaving, yeah. And and you destroy the beauty and the poetry of it. And rubbish, you know, the Feynman talks about this very eloquently. It's, it doesn't, it adds, it adds to the beauty. So there, there's the colors of the rainbow there on, on, the, on the book as well. Yeah, I found that quite lovely. The book is a delight. It's a quick read. I actually, because I don't think it's available yet on audiobook format, I actually put it into an app called Speechify, uh, and I listened to a British accent voice, and it was really delightful. Uh, this book can be consumed with delight in just a few hours. And yes, those characters speak vividly through the book. 
uh, as well as uh, some of their maybe counterpoints. And, and maybe I want to start with the battle, epic battle between Walt Whitman and, and Richard Feynman, you know, the learned astronomer versus the uh, learned physicist. And, and of course, Feynman, as you quote, says, you know, do I care less about Jupiter because I know he's not a god and made of methane? No. So I taught a class here with a Pulitzer Prize winner by the name of Ray Armantrout, who's a poet. And uh, we taught a class called uh, called Poetry for Physicists, which is the exact opposite of what you normally teach. But I wonder how much uh, can we learn from our poetic friends? As as your countryman uh, Paul Dirac said, you know, uh, so something like you know, poets attempt to do explain the most uh, simple things in the most uh, obtuse, obfuscational language possible. And in science, the joy is doing just the opposite. So, so explain that tension, that fundamental tension. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see that tension. I, I, I start off in the book in saying, uh, first of all, science isn't a collection of facts. That's called knowledge. <laughs> science is the process by which we acquire that knowledge. But I also acknowledge that there are other ways that we gain knowledge, enlightenment and wisdom. We know, And it could be through poetry or art or literature or music or contemplation or, or re religious texts or just discussing and debating with our fellow human beings. But science is one way. And when it comes to the, 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 the uh, natural sciences, you know, our area of physics, for example, science, I believe, is the most reliable way of getting to understand the nature of, of, uh, of, of physical reality out there. Poetry is a, is, a, is a tool that can bring that to life, can add to the narrative, to add to the story of how, the way the world is. I don't think poetry detracts from our ability to understand. I think it enriches in the way that science also enriches our understanding. So different different ways of looking at the world. Yeah, hopefully they can complement each other and not, Absolutely. Uh, lead to some uh, some further um, uh, you know warfare. Um, so you mentioned, you know, knowledge and of course, you know, the word science in Latin means scientia means uh, means knowledge, but it doesn't mean wisdom. That's what sapient or sapienza means. So you know, do you think at some level enough uh, knowledge can kind of convert you to to having wisdom? In other words, is there a, is there a quantity after which you assume such amount of quantity of knowledge that you actually become wise? Or are they fundamentally blocked off from one another? I don't think they're the same thing. I mean, that that they are connected with each other. The more knowledge and experience you have, I would suggest they're correlated. You should be more rather than less wise. But I don't think wisdom is something that can be acquired if, if you know, someone who knows nothing about a particular area or discipline, if they could absorb all the knowledge and information about that discipline, that doesn't make them wise. I like the, the fact that for me at my stage in my, in my career, I'm now leaning more towards offering wisdom to my, my young students rather than you know, the, the knowledge. They're smarter, they're faster than me, they can remember stuff. I've forgotten more than they've learned, but I hope that I can offer wisdom. And I don't think that's the same thing as because I have an accumulation of knowledge, but they are connected. They are connected. Yeah. What do you, how do you react to this statement? I'm going to, I'm going to drop on you. Follow the science. What does mm. that mean to you? Oh, God. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's the, the phrase that has been used by politicians, particularly during the pandemic over the last two years to somehow absolve themselves of any responsibility, you know, if they don't follow sensible policies. Just to say we are following the science is meaningless. I mean, you, you say we are following the advice of scientists 
based on our current understanding, fine. But I, I, if that's what they mean and they've just shortened it down to follow the science, three words, fine. But I worry that politicians don't actually understand what it is. For the science, you know, following the science means doing doing science means following the scientific method. You're not doing that. You're listening to someone giving you advice, which chances are you're going to ignore. <laughs> In your opinion, uh, you know, I always get kind of um, reaction to this. You know, that there is no real one scientific method. I mean, you don't go down and, you know, I don't go down to my laboratory and say, now I'm going to test the hypothesis and then I'm going to acquire. Uh, and and actually there, in my estimation, I mean, you're, you're, you know, far better qualified to answer, but there's multiple scientific methods. There's deductive, there's inductive. Um, what is this? What is the scientific method? Is it just a rubric? Is it just a, a shorthand or is it a shibboleth? What is it exactly? I certainly think it's, it's, it's a, a, a collection of all the ways that we've used across the disciplines that we call scientific disciplines to gain more knowledge. It's certainly not a, you know, a tick, a box ticking exercise. And say, you know, what does it mean to be a scientist? Well, you have to be curious about the world. Well, you know, a conspiracy theorist is curious. It's about gathering evidence. And, and well, the conspiracy theorist thinks they're being rational and gathering evidence and, and being skeptical and so on. Is it about testing a hypothesis? against, you know, you come up with a, a narrative a hypothesis, test it against observation. Well, a historian does that as well. Does that mean history is part of science? No, it means they're using the same techniques to learn something about the nature of the past as, you know, as opposed to the nature of physical reality around us. So there isn't a list of things. There's some areas of science require, you know, falsifiability or reproduce, re reproducibility and so on. Other areas require testing of hypotheses and coming up with a theory that has predictive power. But even, you know, pre having predictive power is not enough. You know, your, 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 your star signs, your, you know, reading your astrological star chart may say you're going to get promotion next Tuesday when you're going to work. And sure enough, your boss gives you a promotion. You say, oh, look, it predicted correctly. Therefore, astrology is a science. Well, you know, there isn't one size fits all. It is, a, you're right, it's a nebulous term that can mean different things depending on the sort of science that we're doing. Yeah. So last year, past guest on the show, Lord Martin Rees, told me, you know, pertinent to astro astrology that, you know, he's responsible as the Astronomer Royal to tell the Queen her horoscope. I thought that was... <laughs> Really nice. Uh, I'd like to have that gig, you know, for the president here. I'd like to be the uh, federal astronomer. Uh, yes. But uh, but in reality, yeah, there there is as as we maybe pivot to a subject that you you bring up in the joy of science, this kind of fascination with with Karl Popper and and this falsification. And you just pointed out, you know, uh, not only could such a prediction of a soothsayer, as Popper called them, come true, but it, it's also falsifiable. If you didn't get the raise, so then uh, his hypothesis was falsified. Therefore, it's science. What gives? I mean, what? Yeah. What? How much do we put on Popper? I mean, in my understanding, he didn't even think we should put that much effort, uh, emphasis on falsification as the sine qua non. No, absolutely. Now, I, I think when I was a student, um, it was always argued that you know the, the two the great philosophers of science of our age were Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn. You know the, the, the paradigm shift ideas. I think these days this notion, the Popper's idea of falsification, isn't held at in such high regard. You know, put on a pedestal like it used to. You know, we're we're much more careful now talking about you know being good Bayesians. You know, that having you know priors, you know, that, that what's the probability that this idea is right? Well, based on what your initial assumptions were, surely, and what's the probability that they were right? The idea of falsification, I, I'd use the example in the 
in the book, which is that many people have used before, you know, all swans are white. You see one one brown swan and, and you say, see, that suggests that, you know, it falsifies your theory that all swans are white. But then how do you know that brown swan isn't just a white swan caked in mud? <laughs> you know? So the, 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 the falsifying counterexample itself may not be correct. You know, and we've seen this in physics, you know, you the, the famous experiment of the faster than light neutrinos a few years ago. That you, oh yes, opera. Yeah, the opera opera experiment. You know, they they detected these particles that looked like they were getting from A to B faster than the speed of light. Oh, Einstein's wrong, you know. And then, but it turns out the experiment itself was wrong. There was a loose cable behind one of the the, the, the counters in the computer. So that's right. Just having one false. So yeah. So falsification is is. Uh, Probably not not as as a strong uh, um, a definition of what good a good scientific theory should be. And then uh, you mentioned you know a frequent character in all popular books. Uh, in addition to Feynman and and uh, and Galileo and Newton, uh, you mentioned Einstein just a second ago. And uh, chapter uh, chapter five in this wonderful book is called uh, entitled "Don't Value Opinion Over Evidence." And I wonder if we could talk about. Authority. My favorite scientist of all time is Galileo, who said, uh, "In matters of science, the uh, you know the issues of authority cannot uh, overcome the humble reasoning of a of a lone individual." Of course, I get that all the time. Yesterday alone, I mean, I posted on my Twitter, you know, I'm going to be talking to you, and uh, I got all sorts of questions. Like people wanted me to ask you about their theories about you know conscious electrons and this thing, and and we'll get to some audience questions. Don't don't worry because that that is part of my hallmark on this channel. Uh, but nevertheless, you should also have some respect for authority in science, as as Feynman or Sagan, I can never remember which one said. Um, you know, I'd rather have you know answers uh, that questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. To me, that's a canard against, you know, religion. But I wonder, you know, do we worship, you know, this guy a little bit over much? Uh, are we kind of infatuated? In fact, in the public, when we see things like the during the coronavirus that you just mentioned, or with the Iran nuclear deal, they trot out 70 Nobel Prize winners, you know, 11 of whom have been on my show, you know, and, and they'll just trot them out. And then we're supposed to say, OK, we'll just do what you say in all these matters, even though you're a condensed matter physicist talking about a vaccine that's, you know, MNRA. Anyway, <laughs> what, to what level should the general layperson experience a little bit of the joy of science by questioning the authorities, even this guy? First of all, Having uh, is something we see on social media more and more these days. You know, valuing opinion over evidence is is a is a worry, uh, and it's true that you know, you know, when my my plumber comes around to fix my boiler and he says, "Oh, I know what's wrong with it. Uh, you know, there's this error. It's, it means you've got to change this the circuit board." I don't say to him, "Don't worry. You know, I've had a look on YouTube. I know exactly what I can do it myself." Or you know, I'm a theoretical physicist. I'm a theoretical physicist. I, I, everything is made of quarks. Surely I must I must be able to figure. I know so much more than you could ever. Um, uh, no, Lenny Susskind, Lenny Susskind was a plumber, so. Oh well, that, right, right. Okay, so yeah, well, he, so he can do that. He can say that, but the rest of us know. So to some extent, you have to say, look, someone has expertise because they've had years of study and and thinking about this, and you can't just come to it and say, what right does this person have to say that they're right and I'm wrong? Uh, you know, I, I I'm sure you get the, the same as me. We get the, the emails and the letters from people saying. 
I have no background in physics. However, you know, I've proven Einstein wrong. You know, E equals MC cubed, you know, not MC squared. And if you help me, I'll share the Nobel Prize with you. Yeah, but I'm not telling you yet because, you know, that's right. You have to help me get my, my stuff up. I think, oh. So, you know, you don't want to insult people. Some, some of these, you know, they're, they're, these people are very earnest and, and, and genuine, and they've spent years thinking about this stuff, but they haven't had the benefit of, of you know, doing a, a, a proper course on, in, in physics, for example, relativity theory. And... In all likelihood, you know, you, you have to tell them, look, just because I, no one believed Einstein when he came along, you know, uh, uh, and, and he changed the, you know, the, caused the paradigm shift, doesn't mean that you are also another Einstein. With all due respect, doesn't hold, right? <laughs> yeah, with all due respect, you know, that he was one of a kind. But you're right that the flip side is that we overly respect someone because they have a title or because you know they 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 are have expertise in one area, and we assume if it has the whiff of science, you know, then it must be true. I mean, I mean, in the commercial world, in businesses, this is how they advertise stuff. You know, you you know, add a, a new yogurt or a new face cream, you add a scientific word there. And, oh, wow, see, scientists have said you know, and therefore it becomes the truth. So we do have to question where the evidence comes. So chances are, if someone's dedicated their life to a subject, then I would give them the benefit of the doubt. I wouldn't assume that I shouldn't trust anything they say because they may have ulterior motives. They may have ulterior motives. They may, you know, may be saying something because their paymasters want them to or because they want to promote a particular theory because they've invested their lives in it, even though it's wrong. But there's a good chance that if you're an expert, you probably know more than someone who just comes up with a, some opinion. <laughs> Hello, students of the impossible. It's Professor Brian Keating here with just a tiny little homework assignment to interrupt your podcast. And that's to make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast or following us on your podcast app of choice. Did some research and actually only about 50% of you are actually following or subscribing to the Into the Impossible podcast. And really mean a lot if you could subscribe and keep up to date with me with all the greatest content i'm putting out tremendous amounts podcast has grown in popularity but it can be better and bigger with your help do that please do it now don't wait you'll forget if you're looking to really boost your position on the grade curve for some extra credit make sure to leave a rating or review of the podcast it really helps thanks a lot now back to the show do you think you can, you know, turn someone into a scientist, you know, just based on their pure passion? Like you said, curiosity, you know, my uh, I'm curious about conspiracies myself sometimes. Uh, we'll get to those later in the next interview. <laughs> but uh, can you really convert, you know, teach someone to be a scientist? Can you can you start? And, and uh, if so, how? how? How would you, how do you do well, that? Well, yeah, absolutely you can. I mean, being a scientist, these, we are not a, a, a separate species from the rest of humankind. You know, we are people who, you know, we're all curious as children and we ask the why questions. Most people, as they grow up, they, you know, they, they got to get on with their lives. They got to get a job and a mortgage and a family and all the, you know, the challenges of daily life. And they stop asking those why questions. They stop being curious about how and why is the world the way it is. They don't have that luxury. Those of us who are trained in science, it becomes our job to keep asking those questions. So we remain curious. But training someone to become a scientist is not is nothing special. It's about showing how we do science. It's about, you know, the scientific method. Being, you know, it's one of the most important things are never being completely certain about something, always allowing place for doubts to change your mind, and also being prepared to admit when you're wrong. 
You know, and I always say that's the difference between a good scientific theory and a conspiracy theory. Ask a conspiracy theorist, what evidence would it take for me to persuade you to change your mind? And they would have to admit nothing. Nothing would. By definition, a conspiracy theorist, it's, it, you know, that's their whole reason for believing what they believe, because nothing is going to dissuade it. Whereas a scientist, a good scientist, has to be prepared to say, I was wrong. I thought this theory, this hypothesis, this, I could explain this phenomenon. You've presented me with data uh, or some observational evidence that suggests I'm wrong. I have to change my mind. Not all scientists, I mean, not all scientists do that, right? Not all scientists are good, but that's the way it should work. And I don't see any reason why anyone couldn't learn to, to, to think in that way. Now, when you hear things like trust the science, I want to pivot now to uh, actually what I understand is the impetus for writing the book. It you know, came out of the COVID pandemic. You know, COVID came out, I recall things in the UK, uh, Professor Ferguson, uh, the rival institution and other coming out with uh, models predicting dire, you know, numbers of deaths, uh, you know, in very short period of time. And eventually, maybe that'll prove to be correct. And, and similarly, you mentioned global climate change and global warming. A lot of this is based on extremely complex physics. Uh, and if at all, if it is linear, if we can actually re be reductionist and, and say that, well, a virus is just biology, biology is just chemistry, chemistry is just cell, you know, physics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, at some level, physicists should be able to do stuff. And yet we get a lot of things wrong uh, when we uh, tur turn to models. Talk about like, what is the role of a model in science and, and not the runway kind of which you certainly could be? One of the guests I told, I'd have the, uh, a radio show on, on the BBC, the, the Life Scientific, which uh, which has been going for many years, in which I interview um, other, other scientists. I remember interviewing a climatologist, Tamsin Edwards, very sp smart scientist who you know, works on mathematical models. And she has a website and a blog which has the title, All Models Are Wrong. I forget who, where the quote comes from. All models are wrong, but some are more useful than others, right? Or something like that. So a model is a model. It, ma it makes a prediction, and it's only as good as whatever information you feed it in the first place. We try and develop our models to make them more and more sophisticated. We trust models more if you have two very different computational models, two different sort of imaginary pictures of, of reality that make the same predictions. If they come at some you know, prediction about how something will change and evolve, like how the, what the climate would look like 50 years from now, and they have different assumptions and inputs, and yet both point to the same thing happening, tends to make them, it's a bit like doing two different experiments in two different labs and they both discover the same phenomenon, the, that reproducibility. So, so a, computer, uh, a computational model is, a, is, a, is like doing an experiment in the lab, but with zeros and ones. Uh, and you can get it wrong in the same way that you can get your experiment wrong. So, so models are useful, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't trust that they are telling us the truth but at the same time, we shouldn't dismiss them out of hand simply because one day they, we might find that they're incomplete. And I think that's all well and good when you're looking at, you know, the millennium simulation of structure formation in the early universe, or you're looking at, you know, how uh, certain, you know, primates, you know, evolved and got out of Africa. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, when it impacts, you know, the layperson in their daily life, things like climate change, things like uh, viral, you know, epidemiology. Yeah. Uh, if you can't trust these people who, as you say, rightfully so, have dedicated their lives to this career. I mean, what does it do to the scientific confidence people have in uh, confidence in science when they will, if anything, know when people get models wrong rather than right? Yeah, I think for one thing is people need to understand 
how science works. I think something has happened to some extent over the course of the last two years of the pandemic. People have seen the scientific method in action and have seen these modelers saying this is going to happen or, you know, the, the way to stop yourself from catching COVID is to, you know, to wash your hands. I don't know if this was the same thing in the US, but in the UK, it was there was the mantra, wash your hands while singing happy birthday twice through, right? You know, that, that length of time, you know. And then, you know, a few months later, it was, oh, no, no, washing your hands isn't so important. You've got to wear a mask or you've got to have ventilation. And so, so people who don't understand how science works said, hang on, you guys just told, told me that I could avoid catching COVID washing my hands. Now you're saying I've got to wear a mask. You know nothing. But if people understand how science works, they say, well, no, this is in the light of new evidence. We need to be able to backtrack, to change our minds, to, you know, to, to revise our view. What also is important, particularly for something like climate change, I think is that we have to apply the precautionary principle that we know we're never going to be sure that, you know, the climate is going to change in this way or that that it's going to lead to these dire consequences. But in all likelihood, it's going, you know, there's the the, the famous example that, uh, you know, 97% of climatologists say, you know, we humans are changing the climate. There must have been some survey some years ago, the 97% of, you know, and, and then people say, well, hang on a minute. So you're not sure. So there's 3% of good scientists who argue the difference. Maybe you're wrong. But if you go to your doctor and, and your doctor says, if you don't give up drinking and smoking and change your diet, you know, you're going to be dead in five years. And you say, well, doctor, how sure are you? Say, well, I can't be sure. I'd say 97% sure. You're not going to turn around and say, ah, OK, I'm going to seek a second opinion because you're not sure. You adopt the precautionary principle and say, chances are you're right better safe than sorry, we should do something about it. So, and that's how I feel about climate change. Chances are things are going going badly wrong and we need to do something about it. Maybe we, we don't have to, but we can't afford not to do something. Yeah. One of the powerful takeaways, you know, from the book and from, you know, conversations I've heard on the Life Scientific and elsewhere is that, um, you know, when you say something, when a scientist says, I don't know, it, it doesn't mean like, everything's equally likely, you know, it doesn't mean like, I don't know what's going to happen with, you know, it doesn't mean like COVID's nothing or it's everything or climate change. And yet again, when it does impact, you know, the ordinary person, I feel like you and I, let's, I just want to toot our own horns for a second. We get paid by the taxpayer at some level to do a job we would do for free. I mean, don't right. tell Gavin Newsom, no, no. Boss, but I would do it for free, right? Uh, I don't know about you, uh, yeah. but, but I assume that you would because you have so much joy, literally. And that's the reason I think you use that in the title, right? So it's pleasurable. We get paid. So on what other job, you know, if you if you are the plumber and uh, and you come over to fix the house and the plumber tells you, uh, you can't understand what I'm doing. Uh, it's very complicated. And, and she's right. You know, she's actually very astute and knows plumbing. She's done her, dedicated her whole life to plumbing, as you said. But yeah, if she tells you, you can't understand it. It's very complicated. And as you quote Feynman saying in the book, you know, if I could explain why I won the Nobel Prize, it wouldn't be worth a Nobel Prize. On the other, on another day, he said, if you don't, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, you don't understand it. So like, which is it, Feynman? You know, I want to, I want to ask. But anyway, uh, to what extent do you believe, or maybe disagree? I'll state what I believe. I think it's a moral obligation that we scientists have, and that we fail miserably at half the time because we're so busy. But we have to tell the public in terms they can understand yeah. um, what we're doing with their money that they've given us this treasure to do what we would do for free. What? How, how have you utilized – because you obviously are one of the master communicators who have ever lived. I mean actually because of your huge impact, BBC and in America and Netflix and all the places, you've had an outsized impact. Did you have training? What is your underlying philosophy of doing that essential outreach, which is to the benefit of science so we can keep getting funds to do what we love? I have to say in all honesty, I don't – 
do my science communication altruistically because I feel I have a moral obligation for the world to be more scientifically literate. I do it because it gives me joy. Uh, you know, I, I've always said that I don't want just to be a science communicator talking about other, other people doing the science. I want to be a scientist who communicates. But when I find out something fascinating about the world, why, why wouldn't I want to shout it from the rooftops? Why wouldn't I want to tell everyone about it? When I communicate science, when I'm explaining something to, to, to someone who doesn't have the, the, the background expertise, they're not dumber than me. You know, this idea that we said we are dumbing down in order for people to understand, that's not, they're not, they're not dumber than me. They just haven't had the benefit of years of dedicated thinking about this stuff that I have. Getting an, an idea across in a way that I think they can understand. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably leaving out, I'll be leaving out some of the details of the algebraic derivation that are not important in getting the concept across. But it gives me genuine pleasure to see that penny drop the light bulb come and we say, oh, oh, I see now. I get, a, I get the same sort of tingle enjoyment of someone understanding something that I've explained that I got when I first learned that, that, about that. So, so I, I do my science communication because I, I enjoy it personally. Although, of course, I acknowledge you're right. You know, we have a moral obligation. Not every scientist is good at communicating science. Some scientists in, in, in academia are better at research. Others are better at teaching. Uh, you know, and, you know, horses for courses. But those who can communicate, those who are, who want to, you know, like, like you and me, you know, who want to sort of get across these ideas and, and, and empower society and, and infuse, absolutely we have to do it because that's, you know, this is not, some, this is not something that we should be keep, keeping to ourselves. <laughs> no, it's too much fun. <laughs> yeah. It's magic that's real, right? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I want to ask you, what's the biggest uh, source of hype right now in physics or science in general? What, what is the biggest, perhaps most overblown thing in science that uh, falls in the category of hype? I think it might be when we, we talk about the, uh, what, uh, the opportunities with quantum technologies and, and quantum computing, for example. The, the impression that the public gets is that quantum computers are going to, you know, to, to, to replace our, our current computers and they can do everything so much quicker and better. The same with, with artificial intelligence, you know, that's, that we are years, maybe decades, but maybe only just years away from artificial general intelligence and, and, and machines that can become conscious. That sort of hype I can understand why, because they're exciting, and you know Hollywood gets, you know, <laughs> gets, makes a good living out of the science fiction movies that based on those themes. But it does give people the wrong impression that we're getting, we're, we're approaching this you know, wonderful these technologies that are that are probably not, we're not going to see in our in our lifetime. All right. In a few decades ago, there was a lot of hype in theoretical physics that we were coming to the end of theoretical physics. You know that the Large Hadron Collider would discover all sorts of new particles. That we we you know that we were approaching a theory of everything. And you know, Stephen Hawking wrote an article about forty years ago about you know the end of theoretical physics. Just got to dot the i's, cross the t's. And yeah, no, actually, we're we're a long way off. We don't even know what dark matter is made of. Right? <laughs> so there was that hype. I think we've we've sort of sobered up a bit from that. We realise we have a long way to go in understanding the nature of reality but in the, the technologies that we that, that are being promised now i think that there's a, a good deal of hype that's uh, that we should 
also try to try and pull back from. Funny that you mentioned it because we did talk about that. And it's, it's sort of like what I say about string theory. You know, string theory is the best theory ever made to describe the properties and possibilities of string theory. And it seems like <laughs> quantum computers are really good, as Feynman predicted, at like unraveling how quantum computers work and how Lagrangians work. But uh, in my field, you know, of cosmology, we hear about the multiverse. I even had on David Chalmers. I'll talk about the simulation hypothesis. Are these things that um, physicists use to generate, you know, clicks and eyeball? I certainly do that, by the way. I mean, uh, this the, this episode will be called, you know, Jim Elkley tells all in a way that he's never told it before. Uh, <laughs> COVID free, loving it. COVID was a five G ruse. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. But in reality, you know, we kind of do. You know, there's a universe running backwards in time. I just saw in the Guardian last week. You know, to what extent does that uh, is that playful? It's in good fun. Or can it really detract from the public support? They find out like, well, didn't you guys claim neutrinos travel faster than the speed of light? That appeared on page one of the New York Times. But the retraction appears on page, you know, this B17 yeah, yeah. on yeah. the weekend edition six months later. So what responsibility do we have? I've said we should have a PR budget. I, I'm fully aware we should have a PR, but we should have a retraction budget as well. Like, how, how do you deal with the self-correcting essence of science, which you touch upon so heavily in this book? Science is self-correcting. It's often wrong. Never in doubt, maybe, but how do how do we correct in a way that shows the public that we're honest, have integrity, but we also make mistakes? It's difficult when when it comes to subjects that you know the the sexier parts of science, the things like you know cosmology or particle physics or advances in genetics or artificial intelligence, because you know the the media and journalists, even if they're good science journalists, they want the headlines, they want the the clicks, you know, they they, they want to infuse, and they don't care. If, you know, as you say, you know, a month or two down the line, it turns out that that was that was just wrong. You know, it's too late. You know, you've, you've got people excited. In some respects, I think it's good to infuse the, the, the wider public with the excitement of science. You know, it, it happened back with the, in 2008 when the Large Hadron Collider was turned on. And in the run up to it, you know, people say, oh, you turn on this particle accelerating so much energy, you're going to create a black hole that's going to swallow up the earth. And a lot of my colleagues were horrified by that. That's that's just bad science. Well, yeah, it's bad science. But you you got people in bars talking about particle physics and, you know, but you then have to follow it up. Right. You, you have to you have to follow up to, to make sure that people's expectations of what science is going to deliver are realistic. These are exciting things. They're they're they're, you know, fizzing our imagination. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they are correct because you're right. You know, because then if, you know, a few months down the line, say, oh, no, no, you know, we. We thought there was a there, there there was inflation and there isn't, or we thought there were parallel universes. And well, you know, what do we believe? So we've got to, we've got to explaining the the excitement and and the, the the coolness of some of the science that we do. We also have to explain how we do science. Part of that is to say that look, this is a hypothesis. You know, we don't know, we haven't tested it. You know, string theory is, is very neat and powerful maths, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there are 10 dimensions of vibrating sweep that may, may turn out to be wrong. Is it science? Yes, it's still science. You know, cosmology and multiverse, even if something isn't testable, doesn't mean it's, it's metaphysics or philosophy or theology. It's still part of science. It's just we haven't figured out how to test it yet, right? I'm more optimistic in that way. One day we might be able to say whether string theory is right or wrong. But until then, it's it's it's... Is nice maths. Yeah. And if you say something is settled science, that to me closes off the possibility that a young right. 
you know, Alberta Einstein or, you know, will come along and, and solve this great problem uh, that you actually were wrong about, but you didn't know it because you felt uh, that's, that's a much better outcome. You know, we, we didn't want the Higgs boson to be discovered, right? Because that would have meant new physics to be. <laughs> oh, okay. It is. It's there after all. Tick that box. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the experimentalists wanted it to be there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> listen, because... listen, if you've spent 20 years building a lar- the largest particle accelerator in the world, yeah, you want to find something. <laughs> and speaking of which, I'm going to have Frank Close on uh, soon. Oh, wow. Great. Right. A good friend of wrote, mine. Yeah. Yes, yes. He wrote a great uh, new book called Elusive about Peter Higgs, kind of a bio of him, scientific, but also popular bio of him. So one of the delightful chapters that I, I really loved uh, is entitled, uh, chapter seven is entitled, Don't Be Afraid to Change Your Mind. I want to ask you, Jim, what have you changed your mind about? In my area of research, so I started off, I don't work so much in nuclear reaction theory now, but I started my PhD was in, into studying modeling nuclear reactions. I remember looking at a particular type of atomic nucleus and how the protons and neutrons are arranged. And I had developed a, a model to, to calculate cross sections. So the, the chances that a particle hitting another was going to bounce off at a certain angle. And I developed a, 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 a model, published papers on it. And then realized that what I was doing wasn't, wasn't the complete picture. And I remember having a, a running battle with a rival group of researchers. And so we'd like stand up in conferences and, oh, you know, you, you know I, I can ask this question. Why and I think both of us realized that the other guy was also right and that somehow we had to find a compromise. Um, and so, you know, you, you do that in science. You, you, you have a, a view, an idea, or you develop a theory, you publish papers, you have to be prepared, you know, to admit at some point that that is not, you know, the, the end of the story, that you may have an incomplete picture. I don't like admitting this, but I, I hated the many worlds interpretation, the Everett's interpretation of, of, of quantum mechanics, one of the ways of explaining, you know, what is going on in the quantum world. I blame you know, people like Sean Carroll because they are so, so persuasive. Yeah. But, but I, I have to admit that I'm sort of thinking... Yeah, it's it is quite appealing. It I I'm I'm not as against many worlds as I used to be, and I've, I'm I'm saying this publicly now, maybe for the first time. So I so I, I may live to regret <laughs> my words. But yeah, you have you have to be prepared. That's you know that's what science is about. It's not about holding on to to, to a cherished idea or view or ideology. That's why it's different from politics or religion or. Anything. In science, it's it's about the way the world is. And if someone tells you it's not the way you thought it was, you have to accept that. So we're coming close to the end of your allotted time. And I have a few more questions for myself that I'll uh, we'll wrap up with. But I want to answer at least a few audience questions. And we're starting with one from a uh, young, very shy, very unknown uh, scientist by the name of Sabina Hassenfelder. Who, <laughs> who endorsed <laughs> your book, your lovely book, Indeed. Uh, Blurb, along with She's a Past Guest, an upcoming guest for her new book. And then uh, my best, one of my best friends, uh, Sylvester James Gates, Brown University, Blurb did as well. But Subina asked the following question, what's the most exciting area of physics? Uh, so it's kind of the, the uh, contrapost to the, to the uh, what's the biggest hype? She wants to know, what do you think is the most exciting area of physics? Or, or science, it could be all of science. Well, it depends on what the most exciting area for me or the most exciting area that I think other people think is <laughs> <laughs> for you, for me. Well, for me, I mean, I, you know, when, when people look for a theory of everything, we're working in, in, in quantum gravity, they're trying to unify two of the big pictures in physics, you know, the quantum mechanics that describes the world of the very small and general relativity describing the, the, the world, the cosmic scale. And, and as we know, you know, they're struggling to find the correct picture, whether it's string theory or loop quantum gravity or some other idea. For me, what is exciting is 
unifying quantum mechanics with another pillar of physics, which is thermodynamics. So for me, the most exciting thing is, is, a, is, is this new, new um, area of, of, of quantum thermodynamics. In quantum information theory, quantum thermodynamics, the, the uh, uh, um, far from equilibrium statistical mechanics, all those ideas to do with things like the nature of time itself. I find is the most exciting. You know, where does the arrow of time come from? Where does you know the, the irreversibility of time come from? When down at the quantum world, even in, and, and indeed in the Newtonian world, the equations are reversible in time. So where does that direction in time come from? It exists in thermodynamics. It's it points in the direction of increasing entropy, increasing disorder. How does that link in with quantum? So for me, what's exciting is trying to um, blend together, mesh together quantum mechanics and thermodynamics. There are people who've spent years thinking about this. I'm sort of coming to it quite green, but I've bought the textbooks. I've started reading the papers. I've got a couple of postdocs working on it. That's what's giving me a buzz at the moment. Okay, this is a question from my YouTube channel. So a reminder, you can ask questions of all my guests on my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Brian Keating. And this one is from Nicholas Paulson. It's, uh, it's more of a statement. Uh, and he says, don't miss the book called The Science of Joy by Jim's brother, Jim Acetaly. Acetaly, not Al-Khalili. I didn't know you had a brother. Named I, did, I didn't know, nor did I know that he'd written a book so similar in title to mine. <laughs> and he's an alkaline. Uh, he's, a, he's an acid. That's the guy. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so the last question from the audience from my friend who goes by the moniker Memes of Destruction, which I was actually going to choose for one of my kids' names. Uh, he says, I keep hearing about an anti-universe. Might this or some hidden phenomenon help explain the similarity between gravity and electromagnetism? Maybe this universe that runs backwards in time, could that somehow explain the equational simplicity or similarity between Maxwell's equations and Einstein's equations? It's difficult to say what is the similarity between Maxwell's equations and Einstein's equations, other than the fact that we can describe them both in terms of fields. You know, we have a gravitational field, we have an electromagnetic field, but the whole um, difficulty in finding a theory of, of quantum gravity is unifying uh, quantum field theory, which encompasses the electromagnetic force, with general relativity, which is gravity. So the problem in modern physics is how gravity and electromagnetism come together. Now, Einstein was working towards this, but he wasn't working, he wasn't doing it at a quantum level. You know, the idea that, uh, that there are ideas back in the early 20th century due to Kaluza and Klein suggesting that um, there is a connection between gravity and electromagnetism and you need another dimension to, to bring them together. But the notion that an anti-universe I don't even know what an anti-universe means. Is it a universe made of antimatter or is it a universe running backwards in time? They're interesting ideas, but I think it's the, there are too many concepts that we're trying to sort of put together logically here to make any sense of. Well, Jim, we've reached the regularly uh, scheduled question limit, and now we're going to break here. Going to create a separate video where Jim is going to answer the thrilling three, patented thrilling three questions about existential meaning and wisdom. So you'll have to subscribe to the channel and uh, over on my newsletter at briankeating.com to get that. I'll have links to Jim's uh, phenomenal output and all of his uh, TV specials and, of course, the Life Scientific. Jim, thank you so much. And please stick around for a few more minutes of existential questions. My pleasure. It's been fun. <laughs>